So we are now in week four of our current series, Their Own Eyes, and the theme, the theme verse isn't exactly one that we would tend to find on a coffee cup or a t-shirt or even one that we would pray over our children when they close their eyes to go to bed at night. But our theme verse for this series is found in Judges 21-25, and it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this is the very last verse in the book of Judges. And what it does is it exposes their tendency, okay, those who live in the days of the Judges, but it exposes our tendency as well to go off and do whatever we feel is right, whatever we want to do in that instances. And, um, and in turn, what they found themselves doing is worshiping other gods. They found themselves uh, worshiping some of the gods of the Canaanites, worshiping Baal, and all of the different gods that came along with that. And, and while we would never say that we worship other gods, we would probably never find ourselves kneeling before a statue of a dragon sacrificing goats or anything like that. Um, while we would probably never do that, we do find ourselves making sacrifices of our time, sacrifices of our money, of our attention, of our schedules to so many different distractions, so many different interests that we believe that will, will fill us. We believe that will give us life and add to our lives in some ways. And so if, you, if you've been hanging with us in this series, you've seen that not every judge as we get into the book of Judges comes in the same packaging. Okay, with Ehud, he is a left-handed assassin. With Deborah, she is a, a wise, a righteous woman serving in the, the role of a prophet. And so everyone is a little bit different. If you need to catch up on those, uh, go look at those on YouTube. You can check out the website as well to, to catch up with those. And um, over the past couple weeks, uh, I've heard some of you tell me in several instances that the book of Judges hasn't necessarily been one that you've heard a lot taught on. Right, because because of the nature, because of the cyclical nature of it. Um, but if you have heard anything about judges, it will likely be on the character that we are introduced to today. Okay, and so that would be our boy Gideon. All right. So if you brought your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn those to Judges chapter six. Um, this will be on the screen as well. If you didn't bring your Bibles with you, but starting in verse one, we'll get into it, and then we'll we'll sort of talk about it along the way. But in verse 1, it says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. So here we go again. Same song, different verse. Under Deborah, the people returned to God, but as time passed, the people began to fix their eyes on different things, fix their eyes on other gods, on other interests, and move away from the one true God doing whatever they wanted. Verse 2, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they lay waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So this is by far the worst oppression 
that God's people have seen thus far. Okay, we've seen them be oppressed for far longer periods of time. In some cases, 12 years, 15 years, 20 years. But this is different. If you remember the days of Ehud, the way that Ehud got access to the king is by bringing him tribute. He brought him tribute. He basically bought, brought them a tithe. Okay, um, the, the, um, who was it at the time, I believe? I forget who it was. But they, uh, they allowed the Israelites to basically have some autonomy. Okay, they could go and they could produce from the land. They could make their money. They could do everything they needed to do as long as they were brought an offering. The Midianites did not allow that. Okay, it says here that the Midianites came down like locusts. Okay, so anything that God's people were making, any fields they had were eaten up, any sheep they had, uh, donkeys, cows, you name it, everything was just picked up, carried off, everything was devoured and picked clean. Okay, so it would be ladies, okay, for you and your homes. Imagine all of your jewelry being swiped away, all of your skincare products, uh, your KitchenAid kitchen mixers, everything that you, that you hold near and dear is picked up and scooped off. Men, your boats are being hooked to and taken away. They're taking your zero-turn mowers. They're taking, I mean, you name it, it's, it's going out the door. Uh, kids, they're taking your PlayStation and your Xbox. Girls, if you don't have your Lulu bag strapped on, those are walking away too. So things are getting serious, right? So they are taking absolutely everything. The Israelites are struggling to feed themselves because all they have is being pillaged. And so it, it, would, it would be like this as an example. Let's say that the IRS wanted to start uh, taxing me 70%, okay? Let's say there's nothing I can do about it. Preacher, we're not too far from that, I know, but... For, for example's sake, but let's say that there's nothing I can do about it. I'm getting taxed at 70%. I have to figure out how to work that final 30, don't I? So, so kids, we're eating rice and beans, beans and rice. Uh, we're setting the thermostat to 85. If we get hot, just sit under a fan and do nothing, right? That's about all you can do right now. But we're going to try to have to make that work somehow, some way. Um, but if the IRS, okay, sent agents to my house every other day, to take everything that we had, that this sort of changes how you do life, okay? That changes how you do life. Is it, is it safe to go to work? Is it safe? Should I stay home? Should we move? Should we try to hide somewhere else? It says in verse 2 that they re relocated themselves into the mountains, into the caves, into the dens. They went into hiding because they felt like nothing was safe. And so it changes the way that you think, okay? So 20 years under oppression, uh, where you have some autonomy and some way of living is one thing, but seven years with this feeling that you're always on the run, you're always in hiding, you don't exactly know where you're going to get your next meal, this is the condition that they are living in. And so we, we pick it up in verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. Now this is different. Normally when the people cry out, if you remember, normally when the people cry out, God sends them the judge to deliver them. God sends them the judge. The judge jumps into action, uh, begins their military campaign, weighs in on these certain issues. But the Lord sends an unnamed prophet. We don't know his name. In most cases, we do know his name, but we don't know his name here. And this is what the prophet says. He said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. So just for perspective's sake, where, where God's people are right now, it's been about 220 years since they left Egypt. 
Okay, since they left the, the place of their, their first oppression, the place that they had been for so long. Uh, we as a country have been in formation for almost 250 years. So when you think of the time frame, it's very similar to, to where God's people are at this stage in history and when they left Egypt and our sort of uh, birth as a country. Okay, So picks it up in verse 9. It said, And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. And so what the prophet's doing here is the prophet is recounting the deeds of God. The prophet is recounting what God has done, how he has called them his own, how he has brought them into a new land, brought them out, led them away from the oppression that they were once under. But in doing so, over time, they have strayed from him. They have walked away from God. And, and this is what I personally believe. The text doesn't say this, but I, I believe that God sent them a prophet to give them some idea of where they went wrong. Because there's, there's sometimes, and, and, and maybe you've been in this situation, and this probably isn't a great metaphor, but let's say that you're at work and you started a brand new job and your training isn't great in that job and you do something, you do it something that you think's the right way to do it, but you totally blow it, you totally mess it up, and your boss chews you out for it, okay? It's not that you're stupid, it's just that you're ignorant of how to do that, okay? That's one thing that my ninth grade science teacher taught me, the difference between ignorant and stupid. You can fix ignorant, stupid's forever, okay? <laughs> now, it's not fair to, for us to compare God as that tyrannical boss that gets onto us, but sometimes there's just things that we don't know and don't understand. It's like raising kids. Sometimes with our kids, we can get onto our kids for doing something that they shouldn't do. But sometimes we have to actually pause and say, do they actually know what to do? Do they actually know what's right here? And that's caused me at, at times as a parent to back up and say, I don't think they do. I think I actually need to have this conversation with them. I think the prophet is sent to help the people understand where they've gone wrong. Because the people are worshiping, they're crying out to God, but you'll see that they're, that they're in, the, in the meantime, worshiping all these other gods. They're, they're trying to pray to God. They're praying to Baal. They're praying to Ashtoreth. They're praying to Moloch and, and Ra and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and any god they can get their hands on. They're calling out because they, they want help from somewhere. They don't care where they get the help. They just want the help from somewhere. And so the prophet comes to give them clarity. The prophet comes to communicate to them this is who you've strayed away from. This is the one true God. This is the one who frees you from oppression. Okay, so verse 11, we meet Gideon. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at, at uh, Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So us living in 2023, we would probably think there's not a lot going on there beating out wheat in the wine press. Um, but historically, you don't, you don't sift wheat in a wine press. The process, the way that works, is the, and the most efficient way to do that is you would take your wheat up on top of a hill. And in Israel, around late afternoon, early evening, you would get a winnowing fork and you would break up the wheat and you would toss it in the air. And that breeze would blow away the chaff where the grain would fall to the ground. Okay, pretty efficient way of doing it. But unfortunately, if you do that on a hill, you're exposed. 
Okay, if people are watching what you're doing, if the Midianites see you, they'll likely come and take your grain, come and take your life, that sort of thing. So Gideon is forced, or at least in fear, doing this in a wine press, some of the lowest parts uh, to, to do this process. Okay? And so Gideon's trying to do his job in the wine press, verse 12, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, this sounds kind of funny because Gideon is sifting through wheat, making his food in a very hidden location. So either the angel of the Lord is calling him mighty man of valor in a sarcastic way, which is really hilarious to me, or Gideon is, he's calling Gideon what he truly is in a less funny but more epic way. And I think that's the case here. Because Romans 4.17 tells us that God calls forth things that which are not as though they were. So in other words, that God sees things in Gideon that other people may not see. The same is true for you and I, that God sees things in us that friends don't see, that families don't see, that sometimes we don't even see, that sometimes we are even hesitant to believe, but God calls for things as they are, not always as they appear to be. So we're, we're hesitant to believe some of those things, and we find that Gideon is the same, that Gideon, Gideon is just as hesitant. And he says this in verse 13. And he said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So Gideon's response reveals that the prophet was necessary. Okay, Gideon needs some education. Okay, Gideon's wrong here. God hasn't forsaken them. They have forsaken God. They are the ones that have turned their back on God. And Gideon needs to understand that. Verse 14, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? So what do we have here? We have Gideon complaining. He says, God, how could you let this happen to us? How, how, can, how, can, how can God give us over to all of these things? How can we be oppressed this way? This shouldn't be the case at all. I thought he was for us. And God basically says, why don't you do something about it? Something has been done. I'm calling you to take action. I'm calling you to step into this. And sometimes God does the same for us that God's calling us to, to, to step into certain situations. We wish plans were different. We wish things were different. And God says, why don't you do something about it? Why don't you be an agent of change with that? And our response is, is pretty similar to Gideon's. Like, well, I wasn't necessarily talking about me. I was talking about somebody maybe younger, maybe somebody more experienced, someone with more training, really anyone but me. And, and this is true of, of any church in the world, so I'm not necessarily picking on you. But we, we want to be a part of a church that has a, a great children's program, a thriving children's ministry, but we don't necessarily want to volunteer. Like, we want to be part of a church that, that has an, an awesome youth group. They love Jesus. They, they're not thrown in jail, but we don't necessarily want to hang around with them. Hey, we want to be a part of a church that, that is on mission, that serves in the community, that's got its hand in just about everything. But when it comes to actually volunteering on those weekends, I'm busy all those weekends, and so I don't really have time to volunteer. And so the, the call of Gideon okay, is a call to take responsibility of what God is asking you to do. How are we doing with that? 
How are, how are we accepting that responsibility? How are we receiving that? Because Gideon doesn't want to do it either. Right? Gideon doesn't want to do it. He, he, like Moses, is trying to talk his way out of this. Okay, so watch this, verse 15. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So he's sort of downplaying himself a little bit here. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midians as one man. And I... I always appreciate just how countercultural God is and that God doesn't necessarily buy into the self-esteem gospel is, is kind of what I call it. And here's what I mean. There are numerous times in the Bible that God approaches people to go and to do things. This is one of those. Moses is another example. Even when Jesus reaches out to the disciples, there's sort of this attitude of, I can't do it. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. There's no, you find somebody else. And, and what, what God does is he never, he never really runs to their side and said, hey, guy, come on, you can do it. Remember, if you can dream it, you can do it. I believe in you. I have confidence in you. Um, God doesn't do that at all. Instead, if, if someone were to say, God, I'm such a loser, God would say, you know what? You're right. You are a loser, but I'm going to be with you. Like that's almost how God approaches this is that no matter what flaws you have, no matter, no matter what you believe about yourself, the presence of God in your life, the presence of God with you is enough to carry you through and see you through that. So God doesn't refute anything that Gideon says. God wants us to walk, to walk in his presence, to walk alongside him. I have a note here that says, God, you want me to walk through a minefield, but I'm blind. You can't see anyways. So anyways, all right. Verse 17. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speaks with me. So Gideon's looking for a sign here. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour broth over them. I, I kind of imagine like a, a hamburger commercial where the cheese is dripping off. I'm just imagining him pouring this broth on this meal that's on the rock. I don't know how good this would actually be, but this is a lot of work. And so he did it. He did so. Verse 21. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and the fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Now, that's a pretty cool trick. I can make food disappear, but not quite like that. That's impressive. And this meal was a big sacrifice for Gideon. Okay, if you think about how much, how hard it is to get food, just how much the Midianites are, are sort of pillaging everything, carrying everything off. This is a sacrifice for Gideon. But honestly, it's a step of faith to see, is this really God? Is, is this truly what it is? And the Bible tells us that we shouldn't necessarily put God to the test, but, but I think there, it's okay at times for us to just sort of get confirmation. Like, Lord, is this really what you're wanting me to do? Is this, I'm, I'm searching confirmation for something that you genuinely want me to walk in. Um, and so that's, um, I, I, think, I think that's totally okay to do that. Verse 22, 
Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, alas, which I looked at the translation of this. This actually means, ah, that he, he's terrified. No one watches a horror movie, and when they're scared, yell out, alas. You should the next time you do and see what happens to the people watching it with you. But he says, alas, or ah, oh Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace be with you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Peace be with you. And in, in a world of chaos that we live in, uh, that's certainly something that we're looking for, isn't it? Is peace from the Lord. Verse 24, then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizarites. That night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull, okay, not his nonsense, but his actual bull, and the second bull, some of you will get that later, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and, the, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So these are our pagan altars, pagan statues that the Israelites are worshiping. God is telling them to tear them down, to destroy them. Verse 27, so Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told them, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. God didn't necessarily say do it during the day. I think I probably would have done it at night as well. Um, Gideon tears down the idols that his father has set up. And, and clearly the men and the women in this community Okay, whether this was a, a situation of a plague that was spreading all throughout Israel or just locally, clearly they didn't understand how much this idol worship was affecting them. Right? Obviously because they're crying out to God, all the while they are still worshiping these pagan deities. Okay, so on one hand, they want God to solve this problem. They want God to deliver them from this oppression. And on the other hand, they continue to worship these other gods. And sometimes we blame God for things that, that really don't have anything to do with him, it has everything to do with our own foolishness and stupidity, right? Like some things are on us. Sometimes we blame God for all of our woes, but a lot of times those fall on us. Okay, we'll, we'll cry out to God, God, why did I have to have a black eye going into this job interview? And God could ask you, well, was it me or you that got caught off in traffic and picked a fight with the other driver, right? Some, and, and, and praise God, despite our own stupid decisions, he gives us enough grace to save us from ourselves. But, but we have to ask ourselves, when, when we're really asking God for something, what rebellion is there in us? Like, is there anything in us that we need to repent of? Is there anything us, any in us that we need to, to hand over to God and to, uh, and to go to him with? And so what are the people's response? Gideon tears these things down. How do the people in his community respond? Verse 28, Then the men of the town rose early in the morning. Behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. So you see how much this means to them, 
right? Because if they were sort of half-hearted about this and they would say, yeah, they probably should have come down anyways. We probably should stop worshiping. No, they were very serious about this. Hey, enough to draw this man's blood. And so Joash, daddy comes to the rescue. He said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is God, if he is a God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbabel. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down the altar. So Gideon's dad basically steps in and says, listen, if, if Baal is real, if he is a real God, if he is worth worshiping, he'll kill my son by morning. Okay, he'll take care of the business. We don't have to. Okay, the story goes on that, that nothing happens to Gideon. He is totally safe. He is following the commands of God. And so Gideon, through this story, through this, I guess, front part of his story, he is called by God and he begins to take steps of faithfulness. And what God has given to Gideon in this passage that we have read are two very powerful things. He, he assures Gideon that he is with him. So he gives his presence. Okay, and what he does, and he tells them that when he realizes that he is the Lord, he says, peace be with you. So what God gives to Gideon is he gives him his presence that I will be with you through this, in this, and he gives him peace as well. Like if, if we had those things, if we, what would your life look like? What would your life be like if, if you just had this, this unwavering sense of, of God's peace and presence in your life? Like what would you say yes to? If you had that peace, if you had that presence, what would you say yes to? And what is God calling you into? What risk is he asking you to take? What decisions is he calling you to make? But you're just, you're just unsure of that presence. You're unsure of peace. It kind of unsettles you a little bit. What is he asking you to do? Because when Gideon said yes, he tore down some of the idols that had plagued not just his community, but even his own household. These statues belong to his father. What that reveals is that there are people on the other side of your yes. Okay, there, there are differences that you can make on the other side of your obedience to the Lord. Okay? Who is on? There are people that need your yes. There's people who need your faithfulness. God has called each and every one of us to be difference makers in this world. And so the way that you and I experience the presence of God, the peace of God here in 2023 looks a little different, does it, than it did in the book of Judges. But the way that you and I experience the peace and the presence of God is through Jesus Christ. The sacrifice he made. And you heard me say early on that, that all of these judges that we look at will only do in part what Jesus can and will do in full. Deborah was a wise, righteous prophet. Jesus is wisdom, the embodiment of righteousness and the fulfillment of prophecy. Gideon tears down idols, and we'll see next week the things that he does next week, but Jesus destroys any power those idols ever had. And so for you and I today to, to walk in the presence of God, to experience the peace that God has for us, um, that means living a life dedicated to Jesus Christ. That means a life where our eyes are fixed on him, a life that sees the sacrifice that he made on the cross, a life dedicated to following him. 
And so I want to I wanna give you the opportunity to do that this morning. Uh, here in the middle of the story of Gideon, that, like I said, that we'll finish next week, I want to give you the opportunity to experience the peace and the presence of God by saying yes to Jesus today. And so as we, as we sing our, our song of invitation, um, you are invited, right? It's not just a clever name, but you are invited to, to come and receive the peace and the presence of God. And, and you can come up with me. I'll be at the altar. I can pray with you to receive Christ. Um, if you feel that call, don't put that off. God, God has so much for you and for me than we could ever realize. So let me pray for us, and then I'll turn it over to Philip. Father, we thank you for that peace. We thank you for your presence. And Lord, you, you give us your presence in the gift of the Holy Spirit. That when Jesus went away, that when Jesus ascended and your spirit fell, Okay, on the day of Pentecost, Lord, that you, you came and you came to live inside of us and to empower us and to strengthen us so that we could experience your peace and your presence every single day. And so, Father, I pray for those of us in this room, Lord, that we, we feel like you're calling us into something, that you're calling us to respond to you, that you're calling us to, to say yes to something. And in some cases, maybe no to something. Um, but, Lord, I pray that we would respond to that invitation, whether that be the invitation to follow you for the first time, or whether it be the invitation to be obedient to your calling. We pray this and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.